uh, Leonid Ragozov uh, was 27. He was a young surgeon at 27. And in 1961, he went on an expedition to Antarctica. And uh, he felt a pain in his abdomen on the right side. And so he knew what the problem was going to be. The problem was, on the expedition, he was the only doctor. And so he had to make a decision of what he was going to do, whether he was just going to die or whether he was going to try to operate on himself. Now, you've seen this played out in movies, but this was actually a true story that happened. 1961, the other people on the expedition had no medical training. He couldn't put himself fully under, so he gave himself just a local anesthesia, and then with the help of some mirrors and a couple people that were assisting him, one of whom passed out during the surgery, which is a problem when your assistant passes out, he slices open his stomach and takes out his own appendix. He actually has to work with no mirrors because the mirrors were throwing him off because everything was inverted. So he just does it by feel. And he would take a break every two minutes until he could pull the appendix out and stitch himself up. And he, he pulled his appendix out. He figured out this was a day from bursting. This was just about to burst. And if it burst, I would have septic. Nothing would have worked after that. And Leonid Rogozov made a full recovery after operating on himself. Now, that's what I'm asking you to do today. I'm asking you to look at your own sin. You know what? I broke my finger a couple years ago. I couldn't even look at it. I just covered it up. I knew it was broken. I was like, I don't even want to look at it. But I don't mind rubbernecking a wreck on the highway. And that's like most of us. We can't look at our own brokenness. We can't look at our own problems. But we'll look at everybody else's problems all day long. We'll slow down on the highway to see everybody else's injuries. But then when it comes to our injuries, we just want to kind of cover them up. That's what sin does. But here's the task. And it's a task that we're going to do over these next eight weeks. I'm going to give you a couple of tasks. But one is this. I want you to think about that sin. That part of your life that you've been struggling with for years. Maybe it's covetousness, maybe it's pride, maybe it's lust, maybe it's a sin of the flesh, maybe it's envy, maybe it's greed. I want you to think of that sin. And over these next eight weeks, we're going to tell you and teach you from God's word how we put that to death, how we kill that, how we can actually, with the power of the Holy Spirit, be done with that. You don't have to live your entire life with that as the thorn in your flesh. The power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit can actually help you put that sin to death. But you've got to, first of all, highlight it. You've got to vocalize it. You've got to be willing to look at it, to be willing to say, this is what I've been struggling with for the last 10 years, for the last 40 years, and I'm tired of it, and I want it out. And if I don't get this out right now, it's going to burst eventually. It's eventually going to kill me. And so here, Psalm 51, we see this famous, famous passage from David. And we're just going to go kind of line by line through it. But in this, David was forced to see his sin. This is a psalm of David after he was confronted by Nathan. And it's a psalm written after his rape of Bathsheba. You know the story. Many of you know that story. And you know, even if you didn't grow up in church, you tend to know that story. But he couldn't see it. 
He couldn't see his own sin until Nathan, a prophet, came to him and said, here's the deal. Think about this illustration, David. There's this poor guy, and he's got one little pet, one little lamb. And then there's this rich guy, and he's got all of these flocks. He's got so many lambs, he doesn't even name them. A stranger comes to town, and we've got to do a feast for the stranger. What does the rich man do? Instead of sacrificing one of his lambs, he goes over to this family. They had one little lamb that was their family pet and says, we're going to kill your lamb instead of one of my lambs. And then Nathan said to David, what would we do to that man? And he said, oh, we should totally destroy him. Who would ever do that? And Nathan said, you're that man. You're the rich one that has all the wives, all the things, and you took Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba. You could have had anybody. and This is the one that he loved her so much, and then you killed him in the process. You're that man. In other words, David, look at your sin. Look at yourself. Look in the mirror. Look at what you've done. Look at your sin. So the psalmist opens, have mercy on me, O God, according to my steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Not enough time to go into this, but look at what he appeals to. He appeals not to his righteousness, not to his ability to change, not to, I'm going to try to do better next time. I promise I won't take another, you know, lamb. I won't take another Bathsheba. No, he appeals to God's character, his steadfast love, his mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Okay, so we're going to come back to this. But I want you to think about that sin. The whole sermon, matter of fact, the whole eight weeks, we should be thinking about that sin that you're struggling with and how we're going to kill it. If you can't think of that sin, there's a more dangerous, well, two things. Number one, you can ask your husband or your wife or a friend to give you a sin of yours. And I'm sure they will oblige. They can help you out with that. But here's the other thing you could do. You can pray this prayer, and this is dangerous territory, I'm just telling you. But you can pray this prayer, God, show me a sin. Show me something that you want me to deal with over these next seven or eight weeks as we go up to Advent. May I see my transgression and my sin which is ever before me. And then I want you to see not only your sin, that's the first point, see your sin, but now I want you to see who you have offended. Verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That is so critical. And here's why. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah the Hittite. He sinned about his men by not going off into war. This is all found in 2 Samuel. If you don't know the story, you go back to 2 Samuel 11. You can read all about it. He sinned about all of those people he totally sinned against. But in verse 4, he says this, God, ultimately, it's you I've sinned against. It's you I've sinned against. All these people, yes, but you are the one I've offended. Because I haven't operated according to your law. I haven't operated according to your word. And you know what this reminds us of? This reminds us that we can't accept that cultural silly notion that you and I are somehow morally neutral people. We aren't. Biblically, you're a rebel. Biblically, you're a tyrant. Biblically, God has every right to destroy us because this is the Father's world and everything in it. This is my Father's world and the fullness thereof, as it says in Psalm 24. Consider it this way. Let's say I invite you over to dinner at my house, and you come over to dinner, and I make this great meal. It's just beef wellington. It's phenomenal. Everything's perfect. 
and you take a couple bites and you don't like it. And so what you do is you go into uh, the kitchen, you start rummaging around, you get out some boxes and you start making your own meal in my house. We're going to have problems starting there. But then let's say you go up uh, and that might offend me. You go up and you go into my wife's uh, jewelry box and you start rummaging through to see if there's any rings you like. And then you go to my closet and you see if there's any clothes that you like. And then you see my kids and you discipline one of them because you think they're out of line. And then you kick my dog. Well, I'd probably be okay with that, actually. He's, he's a, a, an annoying little beast. It's not going to be long before we're going to have a major, major conflict, Right? Because I would say, this is mine. This is my world. These are my belongings. Who do you think you are? This is the Father's world. This is the Father's world. That girl you date on the Friday night belongs to the Heavenly Father. That person you're doing business with belongs to the Heavenly Father. Those people you interact with, everything in this world is the father's. This is my father's world. And so when we do something to somebody, ultimately, verse four, we've offended God. We've offended who he is. And so look at what it says at the end of verse four, so that, you're blame, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, I see it now. I see that you're right, that I have sinned against you. This also gets across, uh, let's also debunk this other cultural silly notion. There's another silly notion in culture which says that you can sin as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. Have, you've heard that before. I'm not hurting anybody. Nobody was harmed in this. No pets were affected in making this commercial or whatever. You know, we're so quick to give those disclaimers. But when we realize, no, when we sin, it's an offense to God. We can't say that anymore. So we see our sin. We see who we've offended, we define the offense, and then we see the ripple effect of our sin. Now let's look at verses 5 all the way through verse 12. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, all of us, you're not born, again, morally neutral. All of us are born in sin. This is the biblical doctrine of total depravity, that there is no one righteous, no, not one. Romans 3. That is so important because in this world, we're longing for a level playing field. But what we keep doing in this world is saying, I'm the righteous one. You're not. You're kicked out. What Christianity offers to us, what it offers to this culture is the idea that we can have the same language and we can actually be at the same start in the same playing field, that we can say from whatever culture you're from, whatever language, tribe, tongue, nation you're from, that you can look at somebody else and say, no one is righteous, no, not one. We all need help. We all need a savior. We all need somebody who will come alongside us, but continue to look at the ripple effect. Verse six, behold, your delight is in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. So now there's a feeling of shame. There's a feeling that he can't get right somehow with the Lord. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. In other words, cover me up. I feel stained. I feel shameful. I feel like I'm blamed. Let me hear joy and gladness. Why would he pray that? Because he's not hearing joy and gladness and he wants to hear it again. 
He wants to know what it's like to be happy again, to be joyful again. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice, spiritually speaking, but also your body can waste away from the effects of sin. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew within me a right spirit. In other words, I want to be thinking rightly again about this world and about the people that I associate with. Cast me not away from your presence cast, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. In other words, I feel like I might lose you forever. I don't know what will happen next. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In other words, all of these things have become broken because of that one sin in David's life. The ripple effect of that sin was huge. And if you just think about it, and you can go back and look at the text, these were real issues for David. After he sinned with Bathsheba, then he killed her husband by sending him to the front line. And then he lost that child. And then he lost a child after that. And then his own kids started to rebel. And then his own kids started to have incestuous relationships, even raping each other. And then one of his kids uh, stood outside the gates and did a, a major coup. And David, from that one sin, tracked all the way out to the outskirts of the city where he found himself alone with a history of death and violence in his background, his own son taking over his throne, who's now raping his wives on the very same rooftop that he viewed Bathsheba, and David is out of the city. The ripple effects are major. See, here's what sin does. Sin... Sin tends to promise us that we'll one day be able to contain it, that we can have a containment strategy, that we can say, I'll stop when it gets here. You know, before it gets too bad, before it affects my family, before it affects my spouse, before it affects my friend, I'll have a containment strategy for this. But there is no containment strategy for sin. There is no, it's going to seep out and ooze out in ways we could never imagine. Sin always takes more than you allow it to take. It will always take more than you allow it to take. I watched, um, I've told you about it before, but I watched the documentary uh, Chernobyl, which is not for the faint-hearted. It's a pretty grotesque uh, documentary. Uh, but in that documentary, it was just fascinating to see how one human era made that whole plant blow up, the, the nuclear meltdown. And they had to bring in people because the rocks had sputtered out of the main reactor. They had to bring in thousands and thousands of people who would go up to the rooftop, suit up, and they would have 45 seconds to run out, take their shovel, and pour whatever rocks they could into the reactor, and then run back, and they would have met in that 45 seconds their lifetime limit for radioactiveness. And so they did that with thousands of people in that whole area. You could do Google Maps and see it. That whole area now is decimated. But you know the opening lines, and I've read these to you before, the opening lines of this documentary are these. What is the cost of lies? It's not that we mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies, then we no longer recognize the truth at all. What can we do then? What else is left but to, condemn, to abandon the hope of truth and content ourselves with stories? And in these stories, it doesn't matter who the heroes are. All we care about is who to blame. And in this story, Anatoly, Donatoly, he was the best choice. See, when we hit our sin, all we're, if we can't contain it, 
then the next thing we do in our human nature is, who is there I can blame for this? And that's why I'm pressing on the issue to look at yourself, to look at that greed, to look at that lack of generosity, to look at your anger, to look at your hatred, to look at whatever it is in your life that you say, this is, this is seeping out. I'm going to see this sin for what it is. I'm going to define this offense that I've offended God. Now, two things real quick. I want you to go ahead and think of that sin. Like, this is not rhetorical. Uh, don't make me come down there and, and look at you closer eyeball to eyeball. I want you to think of that sin that you've struggled with for years. And I want you to think of the ripple effect of it. How it's harmed relationships. How it's made you insecure. How it's robbed your joy of, of knowing Jesus and being in right spirit with him. How it's made you shameful. Here's the second thing. If you can't if you can't think that sin, if you haven't defined it yet, then think of the ripple effect. Look at the carnage somewhere and trace it backwards. I could, I could do this with you all day long, uh, but let me just give you one example. I don't have any friends and nobody trusts me. That's the carnage of my life. Well, why? Trace it back because I tend to lie. Why, why do you lie? Well, I tend, to, I tend to gossip a lot. Well, why do you gossip? Well, I really want people to like me because I'm really insecure. And at the end of the day, trace it back to whatever you need to find as the sin because that's where you need to apply the gospel medicine. All right, now that we've done that work, see your sin. Here's the second part. The second point is speak of your Savior. The original analogy with Leonid Rogonov uh, let me assure you of this. You're not the physician and you don't have to be. So you can see your sin, but I'm not asking you to operate on it. But you, you can't. Here's what I want you to do. I want to spend the rest of this sermon looking at the Savior, speaking of the Savior. We've looked at our sin. Now let's speak and let's look about who our Savior is, the great physician. You know what it says in Psalm 103? Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Who forgives all my sins who heals all my diseases, who redeems my life from a pit, who crowns me with steadfast love, who satisfies me with good things so that my heart is renewed like the youth. Look at your Savior. Speak about him. Think about him. And he says uh, in Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees saw this. They said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he had heard, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So now we speak of our Savior. Now that we've looked at our sin, the, the way we get into to kill it, to mortify it, is now to look at the Savior, to look at who he is, to look at his grace, to look at his mercy. Because as it says in Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And when we learn, once we see our sin, when we learn to speak of our Savior, the power of that sin starts to go away. So in these next sections, we see uh, three things. 
We see we speak of the Savior to others. We speak of the Savior to our own heart. And then we speak of our hope. Let's look at verse 13. First, we speak of the Savior to others. Look at what it says. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. This is fascinating. Here David is, totally caught in sin, uh, totally exposed. And his response is, I can use this for evangelism. Now I have something I can teach other transgressors. Now I have something to talk about with people. Now I have an apologetic uh, by which I can communicate the love of God. It's an amazing thought to think about. That's his response. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Not, I don't have anything to say anymore. I can't possibly bring this up. No, instead he says, deliver me from the blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Now that I've been exposed as a sinner, I can't wait to tell other people who you are. Is that the thought that you have when you sin, when you're struggling with your sin? Now that I see my sin... My response is not to pour more shame on myself because of the gospel, because of how great my God is. I'm going to talk about how much he forgives me, how much he loves me. I'm going to go find other sinners and I'm going to tell them that there's hope. This is a great, friends, method of evangelism. I, do a, I speak with a lot of non-believers, not as many as I would like. Uh, but when I have time and relationship, I spend as much time with non-believers as I can. The old apologetics don't work. You know, the books that were written in the 70s and 80s, nobody's asking those questions anymore. You might as well just throw them out. But the thing that does still work is talking to people about their sin and the effects of it and the ripple effect of it. Uh, I saw this picture uh, that from the Tour de France, and I don't normally put up pictures, but this one is just, uh, it was too hard to explain. And on the left, you see a lady with that cardboard, Ales, uh, Omi, Opie, and Omi, and that means hello, grandma and grandpa. That's the scene. And it's just one little thing she's doing wrong. She's right in front of that rider on the left, which you're never supposed to do. And right after that picture happened, this picture happened. That was the result. The whole Peloton crashed. Multiple, multiple broken bones, multiple people out of the race. And that was the result of that one sign, hey, grandma and grandpa, and the whole thing goes south. You know what helps with evangelism? To say things like this. God's not trying to be mean when he tells you that sexuality should be contained within marriage. He's not trying to be prohibitive. He's trying to be protective. And the reason why God in the Bible tells us that sexuality should be contained within marriage is because he doesn't want people to be raped. And he doesn't want people to be abused. And he doesn't want you to have a road of promiscuity where... Uh, you have all of these people and you never know now who loves you and who doesn't love you. He doesn't want this trail of sin. That one thing that you thought was so innocent, there's a ripple effect to this. That one untruthful conversation that you had uh, 
there's a ripple effect through your business and now nobody will trust you and you can't get the contracts anymore. Or you take some carnage in the culture and you say, you see this cultural carnage? Do you know why nobody will listen to each other anymore? Because nobody can be wrong. Because there's no forgiveness and because there's human pride. And so when you turn on the news channel, you get so frustrated when everybody's talking over each other. Culturally, we get all frustrated at that, friend. That all comes back to human pride. And you show people the ripple effect, and then you speak of the Savior. That's how it's supposed to work. You know that media that you're addicted to, that you're on your phone day in and day out, that's going to lead to apathy. God wants you to lift up your eyes to the heavens. My daughter, she's back for the weekend, but my daughter, was, she's been at um, college, and she, had a, she was talking to a boy before she went. Because you can do that now. They all meet on social media before they get to the campus. And uh, he came over to visit her in her dorm room. And it was just the two of them. I'm just going to let that sit. I prayed a lot of imprecatory psalms uh, about that situation. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, it was awful. Because here I was, we were the first time we've ever met. All he did was stay on his phone the whole time. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting he should have made a move on my daughter. I'm, I'm not suggesting I want that. But years and years and years of looking at a screen because you're so insecure that you want likes leads you down the road to not even being able to have a conversation with a pretty girl, Right? See, what we have to do in evangelism is speak of the Savior. We have to tell people there's a different way. There's a, we're owned by God. We're holding fast for him, and he's going to hold fast for us. There's a different way to do this. Take your self-righteousness and trace it back. Take your pride and trace it back. And then, lastly, speak of your Savior to your own heart. Look at what it says in this passage, verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. God, I know the point now is not for me just to try harder, to try to do better. It's to look to you. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise that we are broken. And we're all broken vessels. How do you fill up a broken vessel? You can't keep pouring stuff in. It's just going to pour out. You've got to immerse it. <laughs> You've got to put it. In. That's the only way to fill up a broken vessel is to immerse it in something. And what we do when we're sinners and when we see our sin, when we trace it back, the carnage of it, the root of it, when we see it, we immerse ourselves in the forgiveness and the grace of God. Christine Pohl puts it this way, communities that love truth will make a safe place for the awkwardness of confession, forgiveness, and healing. That maybe in the next decade, the next century, what the church will be known for in this culture that we live in is this. It's the one place I can go to where those people will forgive me, where they won't throw me out, where they won't cancel me. Or they won't talk to me anymore because I did or said one thing wrong or I had a wrong belief at one point. Maybe the church is the place, the place of refuge I can go where I can feel forgiveness because it seems to rain over at that place at 207 Mitchell Road. They make room for the awkwardness of it in community because they have a big view of a big Savior 
who's free to forgive. Instead of forgiveness reigning in our culture, most of what reigns in our culture is fear. And let me just say this, I'm coming to a close, but let me say this. You should avoid any pastor or commentator or political pundit whose goal or aim is to make you feel afraid and outraged and angry. If that's their sole goal, that's, thank you for an amen. If that's their goal, perfect love drives out fear. The goals of pastors and pundits should not be to make people feel outraged and afraid. The goal of pastors, at least, should be to make you see the love and the forgiveness of Christ so that you can simultaneously look at your sin and also at the same time speak of your Savior. For then we have hope. Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you'll delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and then whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. We don't obey God to get God to love us. God loves us, so we obey. And he says, now I'll do the sacrifices because I know you don't require them. We love God. Uh, we don't obey so God will love us. We, God loves us, so we obey. Friends, I want to encourage you today to do those two things, to see your sin and then to speak of your Savior. And then you'll get these sweet words in your heart from Charles Spurgeon. My hope lives not because I'm a sinner, but because I'm a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that by being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is, in what he has done for me, and in what he is now doing for me. Hallelujah. And my prayer is that tonight when you go to bed, even with your sin, you're, you're in a sin probably this afternoon, uh, probably before you get to Sunday school, 50% of you. <laughs> Maybe 60, who knows? <laughs> but my prayer is that when you put your head on your pillow tonight, you can say, hallelujah, what a savior I have. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen.